This morning's reading is taken from Matthew 9, verse 9 to 17, and that can be found on page 973 in your church Bibles. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher sit and eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of a bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Thanks be to God. Do sit down, thank you. Thank you, musicians. So, good morning everybody, my name is Dan, I'm a member here at Emmanuel Epsom, which is the name of this church, and a very warm welcome to you. There's lots of people I actually don't recognise this morning, so particular welcome. Shall I pray before we look at this passage together? Lord God, please would you be with us as we look at what you have to say to us from Matthew this morning. Please would you help me to be clear and helpful. Please would you help us to listen and to hear. Please would you reveal to us the nature of our relationship with you. And please would you help us to trust in your free gift of salvation. Bless us all, Lord, I pray. Amen. Uh, We're mainly going to be looking at verses 9 to 13 this morning under three headings, which are a Christian is somebody who is called, uh, what is the place of religion, and sinners are given salvation. Now, when I used to work in custody in Sutton Police Station, down every corridor there was an alarm strip along the wall. And if someone started to attack you or something bad like that uh, was going on, you'd press this alarm strip and an alarm would sound throughout the whole of custody. Nine times out of ten, it's been pressed by accident, someone's lent on it, someone's pressed it on purpose just to be annoying. Um, But every now and again, it would be because there was a roll around going on. And as the staff there, when we heard that alarm, didn't matter what we was doing, you immediately stopped and sprinted down the corridor towards the alarm. Um, (laughs) What you were doing could, could wait, this couldn't. We would drop what we was doing and run. We had a new priority to deal with. So shall we look at verse 9? Matthew was sitting in a tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. So he got up and followed him. 
At first glance, I think we can lowball what's going on. He got up and followed him, is what it says. I don't know how many of you out there have quit your job and gone in a completely new direction or moved from one area to another, perhaps one country to another. Certainly, there's some people here that have done that. A decision like that is huge, a huge undertaking, serious and significant decision. It's major and often life-changing. In Luke 5, which is talking about the same event, Luke uses the phrase, leaving everything behind him, which perhaps helps us to understand the scale of what is going on for Matthew. Also remember that Matthew is a tax collector. Matthew's country was invaded by a foreign superpower who set up their own government over everybody that lived there. They collected taxes to fund this occupation and rule. And tax collectors were people, uh, the people's own countrymen who had switched sides and chose to work for the oppressors. And on top of that, uh, under Roman protection, they'd skim off the top and fill their own pockets as well. They stole from their own people. Whatever uh, circumstances led Matthew to being a tax collector, there would be a finite nature to his decision, don't you think? He'd always been known for that point on as being a turncoat, as a tax collector. What other job could he do now? Who would trust him? Who would even give him the time of day or the benefit of the doubt? He chose that tax collector life and even now, 2,000 years later, he's still known as being a tax collector. Matthew was sitting in a tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. So he got up and followed. There's a poster at the moment at Freebridge's train station that says, financial security is a win. Join Barclays. Matthew left his job behind and perhaps his financial security as well. Matthew's priorities had completely changed. He heard, of, uh, heard the call from Jesus and it changed his entire life. It's a significant reaction. You see, all Christians are called by Jesus. To be a Christian, you have to be called by Jesus. That's not to say everyone who becomes a Christian immediately quits their job and becomes a full-time paid Christian worker although that does sometimes happen. Um, a friend of mine, James Tredgett, became a Christian and almost immediately threw himself into Christian work and he's still now a, a missionary for London City Mission. Uh, those of you that like the West Wing will recall that when Leo had a heart attack, President Bartlett asked CJ to become his new chief of staff. CJ accepts and her life completely changes. Instantly she has different priorities, different responsibilities, and her personal life takes second place. There's a scene where her and Danny are eating a meal and exploring and talking about the future of their relationship. No trivial matter by any means. And CJ gets a call from the White House, and much to Danny's frustration, she ups and leaves almost immediately. If uh, Bartley was still the governor of New Hampshire, perhaps the call would be less impactful. 
Her priorities change because the call comes from the President of the United States. So then, what about a call from the Lord of the Universe? I think the key point is that if you become a Christian, your priorities completely change. All Christians have been called, and it's much more than simply believing in God. We're in a tricky area here because I don't know whether God has called you or not. How, how could I know that? So let's use this verse in Matthew to work it out for ourselves. What is the most important thing in your life? What is your biggest priority? Is it your relationship with Jesus or is it something else? Is it your relationship with Jesus or is that just something that we say to each other? I'm not looking for us to be beating each other up, but um, it's important to know for certain, surely. In the last month or so, I've moved house and there was a bit of a problem with the mortgage. I'd exchanged contracts, so in that sense, everybody told me, yeah, it's a done deal, you know. But I still had trepidation because the bank hadn't yet handed over any money. I had to wait until the day before moving day for the solicitors to contact me and say, yeah, we've, we've got the money in our accounts now, the, the banks have paid up. And at that point, I knew it was a certainty. Are you certain your relationship with Jesus is a life-changing priority? If you are, then you have been called. So where does that leave us? Those of us who uh, know this to be true, our heart is for Jesus, he's our priority. There'll be those of us that when we think about it, maybe we're not too sure. I thought I was a Christian, but there's something unfamiliar about what you're talking about. There's something unfamiliar about what happened with Matthew and his experience. And there'll be those of us that aren't claiming to be Christians and we're just sat there listening. The first point is a Christian is called and it changes your priorities. The next thing I'd like us to look at is what is the place of religion in all of this? What is the place of religion? So let's look at what happens next, verse 10. As Jesus was having a meal in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. After being called, Matthew has many others round for dinner. And in those days, uh, this indicated significant intimacy and sharing and friendship. I was trying to think of a modern day example uh, to compare to. Um, we might have people round for dinner but it was so much more than that in those days. What about uh, going on holiday with some friends? Bit more of a leap, quite a financial commitment, quite a risk. What if um, this week our life group said, uh, right, we're all going on holiday, are you coming? How many of us would be thinking, uh, can I let you know? It's, it's, it's significant intimacy to do something like that this meal. These tax collectors in particular were hated and I feel like that was um, fair enough, good for good reason. Jesus was a carpenter, remember, 
and it's quite possible that, that some of those there may have personally stolen from him. And now they're being befriended by him. Jesus and his disciples are showing a willing for closeness uh, to sinners and tax collectors. I suggest many of the tax collectors was only there from a direct invite from Matthew. He must have known them from work. If you look down to verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees want to know why Jesus eats with these bad people. Now before the inevitable Pharisee bashing begins, do you think there's any merit to what they are saying? Do they have a point in any way? When I was at school, uh, there was a distinct correlation between getting detention and sitting next to my mates. Sit me next to a good kid, they were a good influence. Sit me next to a mate and we would muck around. Double R on a Monday afternoon uh, is the reason for 33 detentions in my first year of secondary school. <laughs> and I sat next to my friend whose name was Matthew, funnily enough. <laughs> More seriously, what about Solomon's many wives from other cultures? Did they not lead his heart astray? And in the last few weeks, I've even excluded myself from a stag do to Barcelona, as I know my friend's passion for women, drink and drugs would be an influence on me. Jesus quite famously retorts, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. So what is at the heart of this segregation that the Pharisees have been adhering to? It's this idea that there are good people and there are bad people. That we are good and they out there are bad. Uh, and that being with bad people might make us bad some way. We're, we're trying to be good, we're trying hard. And having a good record is something to be proud of. And being a sinner or a tax collector is something to be ashamed of. We're ashamed of you and we don't even want to be near you. So then, I then have to ask myself, what is um, my attitude to those people that I know uh, that do things which I consider to be uh, a moral failure? Is it impatience? Is, um, do I feel let down? Am I embarrassed by it? Am I angry or annoyed, perhaps? Doesn't that just have the same exact vibe as the Pharisees? The Pharisees' religion, their record of good, gets them nowhere. In fact, it's much broader than that. Religion gets you nowhere. What do I mean when I say religion? It doesn't exclusively have to mean Christian values. Do you have a moral code of any kind? A set of things you find good and bad, and do you try to stick to the good? I'm on time. I'm reliable. I say please and thank you. I'm polite. I don't go sick from work. I try to be nice. I'm generous. I give to charity. I tip when I get a takeaway. I don't steal. I come to church and I help sometimes. I recycle. I don't judge people. I'm a vegan and I try to protect the planet. 
You see, religion is rule-keeping in order to be worthy. Doesn't matter what flavour faith it comes under. Doesn't matter what outlook it comes from. Don't we all think that certain views, certain opinions, certain codes is what makes us good or bad? This passage, and in fact the entire Bible, tells us that this thinking gets you nowhere. Religion gets you nowhere. Keeping a moral code gets you nowhere. A religious attitude, a religious mindset, religious behaviour gets us nowhere. Whatever reason there may have been for the Pharisees having those views, Jesus seems to completely ignore it. He invites the bad people to be with him, to share a meal with him and to be close with him. Why does Jesus say, verse 13, that he's not here for the righteous? Why does he say he's not here for the good people? Well, this is perhaps one of the most difficult Christian teachings for us to take on board. Let me read from Romans 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. When you hear that, how do you react? Does anyone else think, whoa, 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 hang on. I don't know who that's talking about, but certainly not me. I'm quite good, actually. Somewhere in my heart, it reassures me like this. It says, Dan, there's people out there that are worse than you. So, you know, you're doing all right. That passage is primarily for them. Now, as I've reflected on my reaction, there are several problems. Do you think society makes us um, quick to excuse the bad, but happy to take credit for the good? When someone's killed in Chessington, when there's a gang-related stabbing in London, or a mass shooting in America, or something else truly terrible, isn't there this search that begins as to why did they do it? What was wrong with their childhood? What was going in their, on in their life that caused them to do this? Now, I can't speak uh, with any authority on these individual circumstances. There'll be loads of factors which I know nothing about. But what is interesting to me is that very often we who are outside of the event, nothing to do with it, uh, we try and explain away the bad behaviour. And in contrast to that, when there, uh, when there are heroic acts or acts of valour, no one tries to explain that away. No one takes away the credit from those involved. No one says that heroic individual only behaved like that due to you know, their good parenting. Um, we don't take the credit away from them. And then what about when I make a mistake, when I lose my temper or when I'm impatient? Oh, I'm tired, I've had a bad day, work's been stressful. The excuses just flow out of me. But when I'm nice, when I'm generous, I'll take the credit all the live long day. Also, what if everything that you thought, you immediately said? You had no control over it. When you're talking to someone, when you're listening to someone, when you're watching someone, if you think it, you say it. Now, if that was the case, 
no one would like me. And I must have heard this illustration 50 times before, but if there was a film rolling on that screen of our lives, how many of us here could, could stay and, and just stay in the room whilst it goes on? Even if we haven't done terrible things, we've done enough to feel ashamed if it was to come to light. And thirdly, I'd like to just, this is the most important problem with, with that attitude that we're okay, is if God is God, surely his opinion on the matter must count for something. He's the all-knowing God that has seen all of human history, heard every thought and seen every act. The all-knowing God of the universe has said no one is righteous. We must take stock of that even if we don't see it in ourselves. You see, any moral code, any religious rule-keeping is not compatible with being a Christian, says Jesus. Perhaps one of the biggest misconceptions of the Christian faith is this rule-keeping element, as if that's what it's all about. But just look, look at the passage. There's no good club, there's no holy club. Jesus is right there with the bad people, basically. Matthew, a thief and a turncoat, come follow me. Paul, the great persecutor of Christians, come follow me. The morally good, the rule-keeping Pharisees, I've not come for you. I've not come for the healthy, but the sick. Let me say it again, religious code, religious behaviour, religious attitudes get us nowhere. For some time... I didn't think of myself as religious. I didn't think of myself as judgmental. I didn't think I was keeping a record of people's rights and wrongs or keeping a record of my own. I'm not that brother in the prodigal son who's bitter when his other brother comes back after years of rebellion. There's been a few times in my life where I've made a difficult or a painful decision because at the time I knew it was the right thing to do. I knew it was right. Perhaps you can think of a similar experience from your own life. And then I've seen other people make mistakes when they're in a similar circumstance. Fellow Christians sometimes make the wrong decision when faced with the same thing. And then somehow God chooses to bless them and it, it all sort of works out for good. He turns it to good. And what I say to myself is that's not fair. I'd done the right thing. Back when it was my choice, I faced up to that problem and I did the right thing and they didn't. I should be repaid for my right decision. I should be rewarded. It's absolutely horrible. This bitterness is, is very revealing about the state of my heart. I claim that I am a Christian, but the self-righteous religious rule-keeping heart is still in there lurking. It's my heart's default. And it's your heart's default too. Verse 13, Jesus says to me, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Dan, you can keep all the rules you want. You can be as morally upright as you want. You can be better than others all you want. But mercy is what I desire. Love, compassion, acceptance and care to those around you is far more important to me. Perhaps some of you here may have been on the receiving end of this type of scorn that my heart so easily develops. 
you've been judged by so-called Christians. They've made you feel like you're immoral or unworthy or unloved, like a lost cause. Can I say, sorry if that's ever happened to you. And if nothing else, it shows you that Christians don't have the moral monopoly over anybody. The other side to this religious rule-keeping coin is self-pity. Perhaps the idea of being morally upright is alien to you. You'd much quicker say, oh, I'm terrible and I know that. Nothing can be done about me and my heart. I'm too bad or it's, it's too late for me. It's too late for me to change. This is ultimately the same problem. The Pharisees and you, if you think like that, have the same problem. They are focusing on the wrong record. That is to say their own record. Look at Matthew, one of the worst types of people of his day, yet he's right there with Jesus and his record did not matter. How? Because Jesus came to call sinners. The final point then is this. Sinners are given salvation. Jesus can instantly make us appear right before God because he appeared bad before him. Our badness, our sin, he takes it. He takes the blame and punishment for it. He became the outcast. He became the reject. He became the sinner, or like the sinner, that nobody wanted anything to do with. He became the one that God turned away from. We only get saved because Jesus got our sin. And because of that alone, we can be saved. That's what salvation is. We can be made right. We are rescued. We can join God in his perfect kingdom. Debt-free, sin-free, with Jesus' perfect record as our own. And there is only one criteria. We have to accept it. We have to accept the free gift that only he can offer. We must respond to the call that only he can give. And if we do, we're in the relationship with the cleaner of souls. The Pharisees of the day would say, no, keep the rules yourself and you'll be okay. Many, if not all religions today will tell you, keep this and keep that and God may be pleased with you. Modern day thinking says basically everyone is already good, so don't worry about it. And in our own hearts, we say, as long as there's someone worse than me, I should be okay before God. And Jesus' death on the cross is screaming out that none of that can be true. Why would I waste my time, suffer, die, no unimaginable pain from separation from God? Why would I do this if you could do it yourself? Why would I have been sent? Why do I call you to follow me if there's some other way? I have the knowledge of all of human history and all of human future, so I know this is the only way. This is the only way. Take my grace-filled gift of salvation. You are bad, but it matters not if you follow me. I was made sin even though I knew no sin. I suffered in your place. I paid for you. I bled and died for you. I did it and I love you. I want you to enjoy the life you was made for. I want you to come and live with me for all eternity in heaven. There'll be no crying, no pain, no dying, and I will make everything right. I want you to be there with me so much that I came to earth to die for you. Hear my call.
What is the sign that we've grasped this in our hearts? It's this, that our pride would melt away. How can you look at people as good and bad if you see what Jesus did for you? How can we cling to our own record if we've been given this gift from Jesus? There are no good people in heaven, only humble people. They accept that they are helpless and they accept Jesus' help. You cannot understand the grace of Jesus and remain proud. You do not understand the grace of Jesus and remain full of guilt. Pride prevents salvation. It's not about you and your performance. Jesus has dealt with it. Trust him, take his free gift of grace and he heals you. He makes you clean and presentable. His goodness overcomes your sin. C.S. Lewis writes this, There is no other way to the happiness for which we was made. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must go in the water. If you want joy, peace, eternal life, you must get close to the thing that has them. So what is getting in the way? Are we struggling to admit that we need his help? Jesus tells us this is the only way and he calls us to follow him. Am I not taking time to pray? Am I not taking time to delve into the Bible? Am I relying on a once a week sermon to know intimacy with God? What is it that is keeping you from being close to him? What practices do we have in our lives that keep us from following him? Whatever it is that's keeping you from him, fight it, lose it, pay the price, get rid of it. Why? Because it's not going to cost you anything like, it's not going to cost you anything like what it cost him to get close to you in the first place. Let's pray.